So today we are kicking off our new series called Future People. Future People, we're going to be spending the next six weeks in Revelation. In Revelation, somebody say Revelation. Revelation. That's right. Touch your neighbor and say Revelation. It's not Revelations. <laughs> Some of you are like, it's not Revelations? But it's endearing, right? When someone puts an S on the end of something, it doesn't need to have an S. It's like when you say the COVID. It's like, that's cute. <laughs> right? It's the COVID, right? Um, revelation. We're going to be studying Revelation. And I have a question. When I say Revelation, what comes to mind? What comes to mind when I say Revelation? End of days, days, right? Yeah, what else? What else comes to mind? Maybe your Uncle Steve? (laughs) Uncle Steve who uh, found out what YouTube was, stumbled across some Revelation videos, and now is a doomsday prepper? Maybe. Or maybe you're in your mind's eye thinking back to the one time when you're like, Revelation, this time I'm going to tackle it. It's the exclamation point on my Bible in one year plan. I'm going to get it this time. And you get a few chapters in and you say, I think I'll turn around now. (laughs) I'm going to head back to John. It's a little calmer in John. Or maybe you think about your friend who's into conspiracy theories and uses Revelation somehow as a proof text for the fact that there are shape-shifting reptilians in politics. You've got names right now, don't you? I know you've got names and faces. Names and faces. Well, I believe one of the reasons why we struggle with Revelation, the way we struggle with Revelation is because we don't quite know what it is or why it is. It's a lack of understanding of what exactly Revelation is. So to begin today, we're kicking it off with a little Revelation 101 course, and we're going to figure out what it's about and then how it applies to us as we begin to develop this theme of becoming future people, people who are oriented towards the hope of full restoration upon the return of Christ. It's the already not yet kingdom, right? It's the already not yet where we are implementing the kingdom of God as we are living out his rule and reign in our day-to-day lives. It's a present reality, much of which is unseen. And at one point, there's going to be a full climax where it comes together, where the already not yet collides into the already and now. And this is what our hope is, because on that day, we will receive full restoration. Revelation 21, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. We need to be looking towards that hope. I can't think of a better season to be going through this text than this season. And so the question, what is Revelation? When we begin to study a new book in the Bible, this is something you can take along with you to whatever text you study in Scripture. We have to ask ourselves some ground-setting questions, don't we? You know, sometimes we skip the first few verses because it's like, oh, those are boring. They're introduction. I want the meat. I want the, I want the good stuff. But we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the genre? What's genre? Is this poetry? Is this prose? What is this? Narrative? What is the genre? What is the historical context? Because that matters. Or else we're all going to be wearing head coverings and women on one side, men on the other. Some of you might have experience in that. That's what happens when you don't look at the context, right? So we got to look at the historical context. Who wrote it? Who wrote this letter, this book? Who was it written to? And why was it written? These are questions, Some of a few questions that we need to be asking ourselves as we begin to open up a new book of the Bible to study. And so, what is the genre? Well, beginning, it's apocalyptic. Some of you are like, apocalypse, like end times, like, what is it, like, like the end of the world? Is that what we're talking about here? Well, no, not exactly. 
to an apocalyptic scripture or genre is a genre that is revealing, unearthing a truth. It's, it's unveiling, revealing, uncovering a truth. It's a common genre in Jewish literature. Think Daniel or Ezekiel. It brings ultimate reality to bear upon present circumstances. Ultimate reality to bear upon present circumstances. It's packed with symbolism and includes patterns expressed throughout Scripture. This is where it becomes important for you. It colors present circumstances with heavenly realities. It gives us a lens to look at what we are currently experiencing. And it gives us hope that this is not all there is. It's also a letter or an epistle written by John. It was written to set the seven most significant churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, by the apostle John, who is one of Jesus' earliest followers and leaders in the early church. As was common, this letter was meant to be spread. And so it wasn't supposed to stick with its original recipients. It was supposed to spread throughout the global church. And this is clearly communicated in the first eight verses. So why? Why Revelation? Revelation was written by John for a few notable reasons. To encourage the church through both Roman persecution and complacency. Depending on where the church was located, one of such things would be true. One of such things would be true. A church may be experiencing persecution in one part of Asia Minor, but in another part, they were experiencing some complacency. Sound familiar? Just business as usual. I'm going to just show up to a small group, bring some chips and dip, and everything's going to be iray, as the Jamaicans say. Everything's going to be good. But Jesus wants more from his people. You see, Jesus is reigning, calling his church to something great as we prepare for his return. He is calling the church to be a future people, allowing the future to color our present. He is calling his church to be a future people, allowing the future to color our present. What does it look like then to become future people? First, we have to address the burden of the future. Beginning in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, we read, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I love that. These are ours in Jesus. Was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was likely in his 80s. He was likely in his 80s and he's been exiled to Patmos. Why was he exiled to Patmos? And what is Patmos? Well, it's an island. Don't think the type of island where you go and you sit Mai Tais on the beach. He wasn't relaxing. He wasn't chilling. He was struggling. Patmos was like a rock quarry, and it was just full of one thing and one thing only, bleached rock. Just a bunch of bleached rock. He was out there cooking in the sun. That was his existence, and he was there because he refused to give the emperor, Domitian, was his name, worship. Domitian was an insecure and prideful man who wanted to be referred to not just as Lord, but as God. And so throughout his Roman dominion, he erected temples of worship to himself. And every person was supposed to go to the temple. And as they would go to the temple, they would take a pinch of incense and they would cast it upon an altar that said, Caesar is Lord and God. And they would then utter, Caesar is Lord. 
John, being a follower of Jesus, realized, even though he could do that and mutter it under his breath, realized that he needs to remain obedient to the Lord. And so his fidelity to Christ, his obedience to Christ, and serving him and him alone, he said, no, I will not do that. And so the Roman officials, the Roman authorities, they took him and they exiled him out to Patmos. All right, go die on this rock. And this is where we find This is where we find John, relationally isolated, relationally isolated. He didn't have his community, his family. He didn't have uh, the people he did life with day in and day out. He didn't have his support system. There wasn't Zoom. There wasn't phone calls. There was nothing. He was isolated on this island. Between him and his people was the sea, the raging sea. There was no way to get to his community. He was politically exiled, tossed aside, tossed aside with the rest of the outcasts and criminals onto the island of Patmos, and he was definitely physically strained. He wasn't using his commissary to buy ramen. They didn't have that. He was out there day in and day out under the beating sun, This was John's reality. This is what the Scottish theologian Thomas Torrance says about his condition. Abandoned to the inhospitable solitude of a restless, murmuring sea and left to rot and bleach upon the rocks. That was John's reality. Can you envision that in your mind's eye? Step into John's shoes here. The beating sun. The sweat beads rolling down your forehead. The sea, the raging sea that stood as this symbol of distance between you and those whom you loved most. Your home. This is where you found yourself to finish out the rest of your days. Imagine what it would look like to be in his shoes. The present was bleak and the future was bleaker. For many of us, though, Patmos isn't far off, is it? It isn't that far off. In light of recent events, I imagine Patmos isn't far off from you either. It's moments like these where we can relate to John, can't we? In this present Patmos, how long will this go on, Lord? How long? How long will I be here? How long will we be here suffering? How long will we be here uh, trying to figure out how to move forward when all there is is struggle and strife and pain? How long, Lord, will these tragedies wreak havoc on us? not just a present Patmos, it's a future Patmos. When will the other shoe drop? When will that other shoe drop? It might be okay now, but what about when this happens or that pops off? It's just a matter of time until another superpower gets us, another pandemic gets us, climate change gets us, a crash gets us, etc., etc. gets us. It's that future Patmos, The burden of the future, what's to come, only God knows. But from everything that we can reason, it's going to be horrible. It's not going to be good. And so if we're not in a present Patmos, we're wrestling with the burden of the future one. That is, unless there's something greater than what meets the eye. If there's something greater that's defining our reality then we can step through this present Patmos. We can step through the struggle. This is what we see happening in the life of John. He was struggling in a physical 
Patmos. He was struggling on this island alone. And this is what we read. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. For John, the defining reality that would keep him grounded through Patmos was the brilliance of Jesus. It was the brilliance of Jesus that defined his reality. It was the brilliance of Jesus that gave him hope to continue to suffer. And it's the brilliance of Jesus for us as we encounter financial struggle, as we encounter horrible news, as we encounter job loss, as we encounter loss in general, as we encounter the impending doom that we're proclaimed, that the news proclaims to us day in and day out. It's the brilliance of Jesus that sees us through, Amen. It's the brilliance of Jesus. Who was John? John was the disciple that Jesus loved most, according to him. One of his top dudes. In fact, when they would lounge, John would lay his head upon Jesus' chest. When was the last time you were kicking it with one of your homies and they laid their head on your chest? That's close. <laughs> That's some David and Jonathan type stuff. <laughs> like, what? John knew Jesus. John saw the resurrected Jesus. But John didn't know Jesus like he was about to experience Jesus. It's the beauty of Jesus. The more and more we follow him, year by year, talk to the seasoned saints. Year by year, you begin to know him deeper and deeper. You may have known him as the carpenter. You may have known him as the rabbi. You may have known him as the Messiah. You may have known him as the resurrected Messiah. And watch how he is about to encounter the brilliance of Jesus. In verse 12, we read, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing Water. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. This was the Jesus that John witnessed. This was the glorified Jesus that John was standing before. He had this amazing encounter with Jesus, and this is what begins to color not only his experience on Patmos, but will, experience, will, will, will color the experience of the followers of Jesus who will read this letter for the thousands of years that we have read this letter. You know, it's easy to get caught up in the punk rock nature of Jesus' appearance, isn't it? To just be enamored by his glory. But something that's important for us to realize within this genre of biblical literature is it's chock full of symbolism. It's chock full of symbolism. So his robe, the robe of Jesus, symbolized a priest and king, King Jesus. The golden sash around his shoulder uh, symbolized the complete, completion of his work. 
His hair that was white as wool symbolized ageless wisdom and purity. Fire in his eyes symbolized not only his purity, but how he sees through and purifies our souls. His, his, his feet were like burnished bronze. Wherever he walked, he was victorious. His voice was like a waterfall, drowning out all other voices. As he held the seven stars in his hands, it communicated that he was, in fact, the Lord of the cosmos. The double-edged sword symbolized his words cutting through the lies of the wicked one. And his face, like the sun, symbolized his life-giving brilliance. This was the brilliance of Jesus that John stood before, but he wouldn't stand for very long. Listen to how he reacted when he saw this sight, this glorious sight. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. John went limp. (laughs) Jesus slept John with a gaze. With just a glance, John was out. This is the scene where we see Jesus' power full-fledged. But not just his power, his love. We see both his power and love colliding in this moment. Fire in his eyes, a double-edged sword in his mouth, face like the sun, looking upon this feeble man. The sun-bleached man in his 80s, struggling to even breathe in the sight of this Jesus. And this is what we read. He could have flexed his power. He could have said, behold, it's me. That's right. Assume your position. Dead before this glory. But he doesn't. In his power, he places his right hand on John's shoulder and says, do not be afraid. In his power, in this ultimate showing of glory, he places his hand on his shoulder and says, don't be afraid, John. This is the beauty of Jesus. Even when he could flex his power, his authority, and his glory and throw his weight around, he places his right hand upon John in all of his weakness. And with a gentle touch and reassurance, he says, don't be afraid, it's me. And guess what? I have ultimate power over both life and death. This is the glory of God. And we have to balance this tension, don't we? of his power and his love. You know, I think we do a good job at at talking about the love of Jesus, his compassion, his kindness, his grace and forgiveness. But I'm afraid sometimes we lose sight of his power. Sometimes we lose sight of Jesus as judge. Listen, he did not come to John in a Snuggie with seven cups of hot cocoa and sugar flowing out of his mouth, did he? No, he came in a full uh, showing of power, yet was still gentle. We have to hold these intention if we are to see fully the brilliance of Jesus. Yes, he is forgiving and loving and kind, but he is also just and powerful, and he holds the whole world in his right hand. He is ultimate power. And we have to recognize that he is both judge and healer if we're to see him for what he is. 
And it's through his brilliance that we begin to become future people. It is only through his brilliance that we begin to become future people. Jesus says that I hold the keys to death in Hades. You see, the point of the book of Revelation is to usher the seven churches and every Jesus follower sense into a faith-filled conviction that Jesus presently reigns and will return to restore everything. I'm going to say that again. The point of Revelation is to usher every Jesus follower into a faith-filled conviction that Jesus presently reigns and will return to restore everything. He will return to restore everything because he holds the future. He holds the future. Listen, Revelation is not about making a bunch of uneducated guesses about when Jesus will return or how many people are going to enter into heaven's gates. That's not what it's about. And oftentimes we get caught up in these conversations and they become distractions for what's really being communicated. It gives us hope that what is before us is not all there is. That what is before us is not all there is. That that it's not just what meets the eye. That reality goes far deeper than that. And all the more that it's not on our hands. It's not our responsibility to make everything right. (laughs) It's not our responsibility to be humanity's salvation. It's not our responsibility. The Lord, the Lord is going to make all things right and restore all things We should encourage, we should be encouraged by this all the more. We should be encouraged by this all the more. Get behind me, Satan, right? Lord, it would be on Revelation, wouldn't it? Some of you are like, that's the prophecy. That was the mark of the beast. I knew it was going to (laughs) happen. Chill, chill, chill. Amber alert, chill. We're good, all right? We're good. You know, what should encourage us all the more is the fact that this isn't some Teletubby theology. It should encourage us. It should encourage us that John wasn't just sitting there like, this is Jesus, be encouraged. But he was literally sitting in the height of his suffering as he penned this, as he penned this truth of who Jesus was. This is what he Uh, goes on to write, or what Jesus tells him as he encounters him. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." When we encounter the brilliance of Jesus, there is always a therefore. It is always followed up by a therefore. Think about it. For Moses, it was to speak, therefore. For Abraham, it was to leave, therefore. For Paul, it was to preach, therefore. And for John, it's to write, therefore. Upon receiving the revelation of the glory of Jesus, John is told to write, therefore, in light of everything you have seen and will see, he says, write. Now, for you this morning, as you encounter the brilliance of Jesus, there's something for you, a word for you. I don't know what it is, 
to blank, therefore. Maybe it's to live, therefore. Maybe you've been walking in darkness. Maybe you've been walking burdened by your sin. Maybe it's to live, therefore. Maybe it's to love, therefore. Love God and love your neighbor. Maybe it's to give, therefore. Maybe it's to be generous with your time, your talent, and your treasure. Maybe it's to share, therefore, to share the gospel, to share your testimony, to share with those around you. Maybe it's to commune, therefore. Maybe God is giving you a word as you encounter his brilliance to step further into his community and to live in this family of faith. Or maybe it's just to unify, therefore. Maybe it's to be an agent of reconciliation and not division. Maybe he's asking you to stop dividing and start unifying. I don't know what that word is for you today, but I know one thing is true. You cannot encounter the brilliance of Jesus and not leave with a word, not leave with a charge, not lead with deeper purpose. Jesus has, he's in the business of giving us purpose and meaning for our lives. So it is in the light of the brilliance of Jesus and the future reality that we live in. Not burdened by the future as if we are the authors of humanity's salvation. Not burdened by the weight of Patmos, whatever that might look like for us. But living, therefore, living, therefore, the life that Jesus has given us. He has given us a life not marked by struggle, not marked by fear, not marked by anxiety, but marked by joy and peace and purpose. Listen, as we do this, we are living presently as future people. Our eyes transfixed on Jesus in his return, believing what he says to be true, that he's not going to leave you in this condition. He's not going to leave me in this condition. He's not going to leave us in this condition. He's not going to leave Tacoma in this condition. He's not going to leave Washington in this condition. He's not going to leave the United States in this condition or the world in this condition. But he is going to return. And when he does, he's not just bringing himself. He is bringing full restoration to all who would call upon his name and who would live, therefore, in light of his great brilliance. And so for those of you who are in this room and you have yet to live, therefore, today's a wonderful day to do just that, to respond to his invitation. Listen, he took your sins with him to that cross so that you might have life and life everlasting. Not just for the future, but for the present. Acknowledging that there is a great hope on the horizon. And that is for you today, if only you would believe to turn to Jesus. You don't have to have it all figured out. None of us do. I don't care if you're a paid Christian like me. We don't have it all figured out. We're still learning here. We're all learning here. And so come to him. Begin this journey with him. And allow him, like he did with John, to bring you day by day into deeper understandings and revelations of who he is. And for those of you who are in Christ, my charge is this. Look up. Look up. Don't just stay in the present. Don't just stay in these present circumstances. But look on the horizon. There's a great hope there. Amen? So God, we just thank you so much for the work that you have done in our community. Lord, we thank you for the healing that we have received from your work, your grace, your forgiveness, and your mercy, God. 
Lord, we're here and we're proclaiming our great need for you. Lord, we're beat up. We're worn out. Some of us feel like we're in John's shoes. Father God, would you meet us in this place like you met John? In a new way, in a fresh way, in a deep way. In a way that shakes us out of our apathy. In a way that shakes us out of our fear-mongering. In a way that shakes us out of our anxiety. And propels us forth into deeper truth. Your truth, God, about this reality that we find ourselves with is. So, Lord, we invite you to do what only you can do. And our prayer is simple. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus.